Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. Hey, Faith, welcome today. Good to have everybody here. Take your Bibles out. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. You guys came in ready this morning. What a great spirit of praise and worship. Uh, I hope as you fasted this last week, God showed you things, spoke to you, maybe did a miracle in your life this last week. And uh, so thank you for joining with us in that journey, and we trust you are growing in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're in a series, Unshakable, uh, Unshakable, and last week we talked about our unshakable God, and that uh, and we saw a picture of the exalted God high on his throne. You saw the seraphim flying back and forth saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And while the temple was shaking and while Isaiah was shaking, God was absolutely unshakable. Amen. Today, I want to look at the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. I want to look at Jesus Christ. I want to talk about our unshakable King. And so we will be looking at that. And we're going to go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a phenomenal book. And uh, it just it's kind of one of these books that says Jesus is better, greater, whatever. You, you see the advertising on television. And uh, the commercials try to say brighter, tastier, better, greater, whatever. And you get pulled into that so you'll spend more money. Well, that's kind of the theme of Hebrews. He is saying Jesus Christ is better. Jesus Christ is better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than all the prophets. He's better than the temple. He's better than the sacrificial system. He's better than the old covenant. He is greater than any angel. And and on and on it goes throughout the book of Hebrews. He's our great high priest, better than the temple. Jesus Christ is all those things. In fact, if you want to know what a, a, a chapter in the Bible is all about. Look at the key words. Look at the repeated words. And the words that are repeated over and over again give you an idea what that book is about. For example, the word better is used 13 times in the book of Hebrews. The word perfect is used 14 times in the book of Hebrews. So you will see that there is now a, a perfect priesthood. And because of our perfect high priest, we can have a perfect right standing with God. The word eternal or everlasting in some translations is, is repeated throughout the book of Hebrews. The word established is used eight times in the book of Hebrews. And that word established means to be solidly grounded, to be grounded in something, to be established in something. And so as we think about our unshakable king, we don't have to worry or fear. We can be established in him. And so you have this idea of strength, of permanence, of reliability. So the key message of the book of Hebrews is we can be secure in Christ Jesus when everything else around us is falling apart. Doesn't matter what's going on around us, what's happening around us, we can totally, absolutely be secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? We, our security is in him. And, uh, and so, and now let me give you a little more background. When, when the letter to the Hebrews is written, it is written while the temple is still standing. So the temple's still standing. 
The priests are still there in Jerusalem. They're still making the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement and and on the Passover time, and they're still bringing their sacrifices into the temple area. All that is still going on when the book of Hebrews is written. But in a few years, the Jewish nation is going to come tumbling down as we know it. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. The Jews are going to be scattered. Jewish believers will be scattered as well. And so everything is going to be shaken in Judaism as they knew it. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is now we have moved beyond that. Now we have a new covenant, a better sacrifice, a better temple, an eternal temple, and all that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was always this continual pull for the Christians to return back to Judaism. And so there's several warning passages in the book of Hebrews about turning away, returning to Judaism, leaving and turning from the living God. And so you have this whole theme running throughout the book of Hebrews. And yet while everything, everything is being shaken, we have an unshakable king in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's stand together. And he opens this, he opens the book of Hebrews with these first three verses that are just, they just kind of burst onto the pages and he kind of sets the whole scene for the entire book. And uh, we see it right here in these three verses. And the whole idea is we can trust in him who is eternal and who is unshakable. Let's read it. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times, and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In other words, the son is the final word. It's the final prophecy. He is greater than all the prophets. And in these last days, bam, the son has spoken. Now he's going to tell us who he is, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. So he's the creator. He's the heir. The son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Amen. We're going to stay right there this morning in those three verses. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for who you are. I thank you for what you did for us. I thank you today that we can put our trust and our faith in our unshakable King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So now open up the word of God to us in a powerful, quick, living way. I I pray you'll help me as I preach. God, I need your help to convey these incredible truths. And we thank you for your sweet presence. And to you always belongs all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. And in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. God bless you. You may be seated today. Who is our unshakable king? First of all, the Bible says he is the heir of all things. What what does that mean? Well, if you were the son or the oldest son in the family, the inheritance would go to you. If you had multiple children in that family, it would be split between all the kids as you do when you pass on. You have your last will and testament. You say, this is going to Johnny. This is going to George. This is going to Sally. And you divide your stuff up. In Bible times, if you had the, uh, if you were the oldest son, you got the double portion blessing. And so you go back and you remember the story of of Jacob and Isaac and and that whole story there, Jacob and Esau and the double portion blessing and and how that got reversed several times in the Old Testament. But typically, if you're the oldest son, you got the double portion and then the rest was spread out among the other sons. 
He says about Jesus Christ, he is the son, he is the heir of all things. Everything is coming to Jesus Christ. The heavens, the earth, rule, authority, dominion, it all goes back and it all belongs to him. Inheritance is his. I want you to turn back to Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two, look if you would at verse number six. Psalm 2 and verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now, there's, there's an image. This is a New Testament image. He's, this is a, uh, what you call messianic psalm because it's pointing to something yet to occur. Mount, Mount Sinai was the mountain of the Old Testament. The mountain of the New Testament is Mount Zion. And so he says, I appointed my son, Mount Zion. I've installed him as my king. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And here's what the inheritance is. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession you will break them with a rod of iron you will dash them to pieces like pottery therefore you kings be wise be warned you rulers of the earth serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling and so you see this image uh, of Jesus being the heir or inheriting all the universe all things what a majestic picture of our king Jesus Christ Now, the sad thing is today, many people don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. And so they they mock our Christianity, they laugh at God, they say he's not my God, he's not my Lord, he's not my king. Go down to verse number two of Psalm two. The king of the earth will rise up together, the rulers will band against, against the Lord and against his anointing saying, let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. In other words, we don't need God, we don't need Jesus Christ, we don't need this king you're talking about and writing about. Look what it says in verse four. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. So while the nations may rage against God, there's a picture of the Son who is at the right hand of the Father laughing at the, at the rebellion of his creation. Christ is above all. He's the heir of all things. There's a, there's a neat story in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And I think when you understand this image and this picture, it's so picturesque. You have this scene in Revelation 4 where they are bowing down before the throne and they're worshiping God and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty in this, this, uh, this immense scene in the throne room of heaven. And then it jumps to chapter 5 and the mood changes. All of a sudden it becomes very somber because they look at what's going on on the earth. So pick it up, Revelation, I want you to go there, Revelation and uh, chapter five. And then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now as you study the book of Revelation, every time a piece of the scroll is opened and a seal is opened up, you see an outpouring of God's judgment and wrath upon the earth the sealed judgments. And so he talks about this in his right hand. He has the seven scrolls, the seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one on heaven or on the earth and under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. 
I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And so we have this scroll, this inheritance, this title deed to planet earth. And there's a scene of weeping in heaven because no one, no one is worthy to open it up. No angel in heaven, all the seraphim, the cherubim, all the angelic beings, not the angel that even sat on the, on the, on the tombstone that had been rolled away. He wasn't worthy to open up the scrolls. Not the trumpet blower Gabriel, when he sounded the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was not unable to open up the scroll. Not the archangel Michael, the warring angel spirit in heaven, he was not unable to open up the scroll. And there's crying because the earth is in such a mess. There is so much sin and death and wickedness and destruction, and Satan seems to be ruling and reigning. Who is worthy? Who can fix this mess the earth is in? But then the mood changes, pick it up with verse number five. And it says, and then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the Lord, the lion, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll with its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb. So he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is also the lamb. Why is he the lamb? Let's read on. Looking as if he had been slain. He's the lion. He's the king of the tribe of Judah. He is also the perfect, sinless lamb of God, which had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Uh, and the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so you get this imagery of, of, of Jesus Christ and the spirit of Christ. And he went and took scrolls from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and, and the golden bowls full of incense, and they are the prayers of God's people. So now this, this scene of worship and praying is re-energized. And it says, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Listen, that is the inheritance. So when it says Jesus is the heir of all things, uh, he has the title deed to planet earth. Why? Because he's the son of God, the son gets the inheritance, but he is also the lamb of God that paid the price for this world and the price for this universe. He's worthy to fix it all. He's worthy to pur purify the earth. He is the one who is worthy and so when he takes the scroll in his hand worthy worthy you are worthy to take the scroll and open up its seals that's who Christ is he is the heir of all things now add to that the amazing thing is Paul says we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And because of what Jesus Christ did, I share in his inheritance because I am also a son of the most high God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a description of our unshakable king. The second thing, the Bible declares he is the creator he made the universe, and not only that, he sustains the universe with his powerful word. That's who Christ is. Now, now the Greek word for universe there is not the word cosmos. Cosmos is the Greek word for uh, 
the planets and the stars and the sky and all that stuff, we call that the cosmos. Uh, we still use that term today. It's a, it's a Greek word. But the, the Greek word used, used here is ionis. And ionis is the word that goes beyond the physical universe that covers all space and all time. It literally means the ages. And so not only is he the creator of the universe, he made space and time and eternity and all there is. Jesus made it all. Made it all. Now, now, now we're sitting here, and, and this blows our minds when you think about how vast and how great this universe is. Let's listen to this. Just, just to give you a couple quick scientific stuff here. Light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. One second, 186,000 miles. That's how fast light is, right? Okay, we know that. The earth is about 25,000 miles in diameter. So in one second, light can travel around this planet in one second, one second, seven times, okay? Now, listen to me. The nearest star is four and a half light years away. So you take the seconds in an hour, in a day, and on and on and on, it would take four and one half of our years for light to reach the nearest sun. Scientists believe that there are galaxies, I'm talking about whole galaxies, five billion light years away from planet Earth. Huge, uh, huge. And Jesus made it all. Made it all. That's how great and how big my God is, my King is, my Lord and Savior is. Sir John Elliott, a mathematician and a scientist, said this, the chance that life could be supported on this little planet called Earth in the whole galaxy is 400,000 trillion, trillion, trillion to one. That there's a possibility of sustainable life, just life on planet Earth. Listen to me, church. It boggles my mind. I believe it takes more faith to believe that all that we have and all that we are happen by accident than to see the the master designer, the hand of an almighty God through the Lord Jesus Christ create and make everything. Evolution is a lie. It's not a theory, it's a lie. The Bible declares again and again and again, Jesus Christ made it all. That's how big our Lord is. Mm. It's incredible to think also that this Jesus who created everything would then take on flesh and become one of his creatures and live and dwell among us, and then he would hang on a cross with his arms nailed wide open. And yet when doing that, he says, that's how much I love you. Give my life for you. Not only did he make it all with the word of his mouth, but the Bible said he sustains it all with his powerful word. So he not only created it all and set everything into motion, but he is the one holding it all together. He's the one who keeps it all from flying apart. 
He, he's, the, he's the one that, that, that holds it together with the powerful word of his mouth. The foundational reality of the universe, get this, is not what you can see and touch through your telescope or on planet Earth. The foundational truth of the universe is Christ and his word. He holds it together. It is him. He is the center and core of everything that there is. What we think of is so real, what we think we can touch and see in this earth is so real and so important to, and it is important, we gotta live here, but, but, but it's so very fragile. And it's all held together with his powerful word. And yet with one word, he can say, and it can all be gone. In fact, we see that happening in the book of Revelation when he creates the world and when he creates planet Earth. And it says in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Listen, though the earth will not remain forever and ever, we have an unshakable king. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the creator. He is the sustainer and he holds it all together. He is absolutely unshakable. Unshakable. The third thing it says about Christ is found in verse number three. He is called the radiance. Everybody say radiance. Radiance of God's glory. What does that mean? Radiance. We, we get that word from the radiance of the sun, the rays of the sun, radiance. He is the radiance of God's glory. In the same way that the rays of the sun relate to the sun are the same ways that the sun relates to God the Father. I want to teach you a little bit this morning about the Trinity. And when you kind of begin to wrap your mind around this, uh, you'll hopefully understand more and more. There is no time the sun exists without the beams of radiance. They can't be separated. You don't separate the sun and the radiance. It is a part, and we see the radiance, and we see the beams of the sun. And so thus we get the words in John 1 and verse number 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was what? With God. So you can't separate the sun in the sky from the beams and the radiance of that sun. They are inseparable, and so the word was what? With God. And, and, and then, uh, in the same way, uh, Christ radiates out, and so the rays are different, but they are the same in nature. Same. And so, in the beginning, the word, the word was with God, and the word was what? Was God. Now, to see the sun, it takes the rays of the sun, the radiance of the sun, eight minutes and 24 seconds to hit planet Earth. Well, you can Google that. It's there, and he'll tell you. uh, After the rays leave the sun, bam, they're hitting planet Earth. So, So when we look at the sun, we are continually seeing the rays or the radiance of that sun. Jesus, the Bible says, is the exact representation of the heavenly Father. And he says in his own words in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. So you you can't separate the Son from the Father. And the Son is the radiance of the Father to planet Earth. 
And so when Jesus Christ is born, it says, we have seen God. We beheld what? The glory of God. God was flesh, God was among us, and we beheld his glory, his radiance. And so you have this this, this this kind of cosmic thought and term that he is the radiance of God's glory. Verse number three. Christ is the glorious light of God that shines into our dark hearts. And so when you go on in John chapter one, verse one says, and the word, and the word was God, the word was with God, the word was God, and then it goes on in verse three and four, it says, and this light came into the world, and lights of everybody else in this world. You get the idea of now the light has come into our darkness, and it shined all the way down into the darkness of Larry's black, ugly heart, and gave him life again. Why? Because he's the radiance of God's glory. That's who Jesus Christ is. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 captures the essence of this. He says, for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness. So he's going back to Genesis. You open up Genesis 1, you see creation, you hear this powerful voice of God. Let there be light. So Paul, writing the Corinthians, quotes that who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has made his light, who's he talking about? The light of Jesus Christ shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is that light that shines in our heart that causes us to glorify the heavenly Father. Hmm, wow. So, creator of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the heir of all things. But last, he is also declared to be our priest and our king. Verse number three. And let me, let me read that to you again. I want you to see it because you might say, well, it doesn't say that in there. Yes, it does. Let me show you. It says, and uh, sustain all things by the way. And he had provided purifications for sins, Anytime you see that purification for sins, you think priest, right? And sat down at the right hand of his majesty in heaven. When you think about that phrase, you think about king. Jesus Christ is both my priest and he is my king. And he made purification for sins because he accomplished what nobody else could do. Nobody, nobody who ever lived could make purifications for your sins. They couldn't do it. Turn to Hebrews chapter seven. It declares it there. Hebrews seven and verse 26. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to first offer sacrifice day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. In other words, in the Old Testament, when a priest would, on the day of Passover or the day of atonement, first he would do what? Offer a sacrifice for himself. On the day of atonement, they would kill a bull. They'd bring a big bull in here, kill him, and we'll offer sacrifice for the priest, and then we will go and, and take the lambs and the goats and offer the sacrifice for the people in the Holy of Holies. If he didn't offer sacrifice for himself first, he could walk into the Holy of Holies and be struck dead on the spot. 
So that blood sacrifice had to be made. But he said Jesus Christ didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. Why? Because he is the only one who is holy and blameless and pure. So he offers one sacrifice, his own life, as the Lamb of God for our sins. And then turn the page. Go to Hebrews 10. Look at verses 11 to 14. Again, you see this picture of our high priest. Verse 11, day after day, the priest stands and performs. Look at that. The priest stands. Remember that word, stands. Stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest, talking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he what? Sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to become his footstool, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wow. That, that is who our high priest is. Now listen to me. I want you to focus on that last verse I read to you. His sacrifice was so final, so perfect, so great, could not just cover sins but remove our sins. He says we are made perfect through his sacrifice. Very little response there. Now, let me see if I can draw it out a little bit more. We who are sinners, say the wrong things, do the wrong things, live the wrong way, messed up, goofed up people, when I say Jesus, come into my heart and come into my life, be my Lord, bam, I'm perfect. I am perfect. I am made perfect by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am literally covered in his righteousness. And then it goes on to say, who are being made holy. So I'm made perfect by his sacrifice, but I am also in a process of being made holy. You have the entire theology of sanctification wrapped up in this one verse. I am holy right now, positionally, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he sees me, he sees me through his shed blood, and I have his righteousness, therefore I have right standing before God, but God is always renewing my mind, making me more like him, changing me from grace to grace, helping me with my speech, and my attitude and my character and that which is on the inside comes out on the outside and now I am also being made holy. So sanctification is a, is a position in Christ. It is also a process of continual growth. Isn't that awesome? And it's all through Jesus Christ. I can't, I can't sanctify myself. I can't work hard enough to earn God's approval, but through Jesus Christ, I am being made holy. And then, then, then it says, look at this. He says, and he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we also saw that. What, what does that mean, set down at the right hand of the throne of God? Well, first of all, don't get fixated on a physical throne. Now, there may be a throne. I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's the imagery of the position of the one who is on the throne and the one who is at the right hand. There is incredible significance to being at the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. 
give you four things real quick. Jot these down if you got a minute. First of all, the right hand was the place of honor. So you always, as a king, put your honored, most honored person in the entire kingdom, they would be positioned at the king's right hand. So when anybody walked into the throne room, when they saw that one who sat on the right hand, they, they deserve special honor and glory because they are honored by the one who sat on the throne. The second thing it represents, it was also a place of rulership. Rulership, right? Turn back to Psalm 110. Tells it very clearly there. Look at verse one. And the Lord said, and this is another one of these Psalms of David, but it's also a messianic Psalm. David, through the Holy Spirit, is looking into this lens of a greater Lord and a greater king who was still to come, the Messiah who would come. And so he writes this this Psalm about this Messiah who would come. And it says, and the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my where? Right hand until I do what? Make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What is he saying? The one who sits at the right hand is the one who has rulership in the kingdom. He runs and he rules the kingdom. And the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse number five, the Lord is at your where? Right hand. He will crush the kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He is talking about the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, who is where? Seated at the right hand. If I could try to describe it in English terms, and it's probably uh, still doesn't even compare to, the, to the, the greatness of this concept, but you had the king of England, but then you had the prime minister. The prime minister was Winston Churchill. It was the prime minister who ruled the nation and led the nation. It was the prime minister that took them through World War II and brought Britain and America through victorious. It was the prime minister. The king went around shaking all the hands. It was the prime minister who carried out the rule and wished of the king. That's who Jesus Christ is to us. He is at the right hand, the right hand of our heavenly father. He is my king today and my ruler today. Wow. Third, seated, says it is a place of rest. Place of rest. Remember I said he describes the priest as standing day after day after day in the temple offering sacrifice. The work of the priest was never done. So there were no seats inside the Holy of Holies. There were no seats inside the holy place. You look at all the furniture in the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Testament temple, there's not chairs in there. Because when they were in there, they were always ministering before the Lord on behalf of the people. They were offering the sacrifice and the prayers and burning the incense, no seats. Where is Jesus Christ? He is now seated. Why? Because the work of sacrifice has been done. The price has been paid for. He has now made purification for my sin. And now he can sit down and rest from his work because he said, it is finished. I've done all that needs to be done. I can sit down. Hallelujah. Listen, because you have that high priest who made purification for sins and is seated at the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, the right hand of God Almighty. Listen, let me tell you, you don't have to go to Mother Mary to confess your sins. You don't have to go to some priest to confess your sins. You can go all the way to the top, all the way to the top, to the one who is over all and above all and paid for your sins. Mm, 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 mm. The fourth thing, the fourth thing, 
it is also the right hand is the place of intercession. Okay? Now, now, now follow me here. If someone is my, right at my right hand as we rule and reign together, the person at my right hand has my ear. Has my ear. Okay? So you get the imagery of the one on his throne, Jesus sitting at the right hand. He's got the ear of the one who sits on the throne. Now listen to me. I take you to Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. You've got this scene going on. It says, who is he that condemns? So Paul is asking a rhetorical question to the Romans. How can anyone ever condemn you? Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, was raised to life, and where? As at the right hand of God, and is also what? Interceding for us. So you got this courtroom scene that the Apostle Paul sets up, and you got the judge sitting on his throne, and Satan comes by, and he says, you know what? I saw Larry today. He's messed up. Man, he didn't treat his wife just right. He thought some bad thoughts. Uh, he's a goofball. He is a sinner. He don't deserve to come up here into heaven. And you know what? Satan's right. I don't. But Jesus said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's one of mine. That's one I died for. I already paid for his sins. I already covered that. I died in Larry's place. And he's okay. He's okay. And he's ever, ever making intercession for us. Oh, my goodness. Jesus. Jesus. Hebrews 1 through 3. He is the prophet. Why? Because he is the final word. The final word. All these prophets spoke in times past. But Jesus is the final word. Number two, he is my priest. Because he says he made purification for my sin. And number three, he is my king and my ruler. Because he sits at the right hand in majesty. Wow. Now, now I want you to tune me in right here now. Some of you guys are thinking in your mind right now. I know how your minds work. You're thinking, okay, Larry, uh, we've learned a lot about Jesus. Great theology. We're with you. But what does that mean for little old me sitting in my house on Monday morning, Friday morning, going to work every day? What does this mean to me? I want to give you three takeaways and I want you to launch onto these, latch onto these. Well, now that you know who Christ is and what he has done, first of all, if Jesus Christ is my unshakable Lord and King, don't put your trust in that which is temporary. We get wrapped up in our cars, we get wrapped up in our bank accounts, we get wrapped up in our finances, we get wrapped up in our houses, we get wrapped up in our stuff, in our jobs, in our things, and people around us. Listen to me, it's all temporary. Put your faith and your hope and your trust and your worship on that which is eternal. He is unshakable. He's the creator. He holds it all together. He will call us home. It's about a new heavens and a new earth. Well, I will dwell with the Lord forever and ever and ever. And we get so caught up in my stuff. Your stuff is going to be burned up. I'm going to tell you, your stuff is not all that hot. I don't care if it's gold stuff, silver stuff, fancy stuff. 
I don't care what it is, it's going to be destroyed and burned up. Only our eternal king is forever and ever and ever and ever. So I'll put my trust in him. Wow. Number two. Number two. If he is my unshakable Lord, if he rules over all, why don't we let him rule in our life? I've identified him as the Lord, as ruler. I've identified him as the one who made everything and holds it all together. And yet sometimes we refuse to bow down and submit to his rule and submit to his word in our lives because we think we can do it better. We think we know more. We think we're smarter. We think I want to have my fun and do my thing and live the way I want to live. Listen to me. If he is Lord, let's submit to his rulership. If every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that what? Jesus is Lord. Let's not wait till we get into eternity. Let's word bow down and worship him, him. Let's serve him now. Let's live for him now. Let's worship him as Lord. Matthew said there's going to be many that will say, Lord, Lord. Or Matthew quoting Jesus Christ. There will be many that will say, Lord, Lord. And I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So do we sing he is Lord? Do we talk about his lordship? Do we say Jesus is Lord? Or do we really live that out of our lives? Do we really submit to his rule and reign? And if he is the king, if he is the Lord, then our only option, if we believe that, is to worship him as Lord and serve him as Lord. Right? Right, right, right. Got it? And number three, if the unshakable Lord holds everything together by his powerful word he is able to hold your life together you may feel like it's coming apart you may feel like every trial and test has come against you you may feel like you're buffeted on every side you may feel like my everything is just about to blow up and i'm going crazy and it's nuts around me i want you to turn your attention to that unshakable king who what holds the universe together by the word of his mouth and if he holds this universe together he can hold your life together he can hold your family together. He can hold your children together. He can hold you together because that's who Jesus Christ is today. Hallelujah. Oh, my. I got to finish. Turn to Hebrews. Hebrews 4. I can't leave without reading this one. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Therefore, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, you see that imagery there again, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. If he is our unshakable king, why do we get so worried? Why do we get afraid? Why do we lose our joy? Why are we so defeated? Why are we so down and out? Listen, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us, let us uh, then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to find help in our time of need. There, there, there's a word that, that, that for this word help. 
when Paul is about to be shipwrecked in the book of Acts and they are traveling to Rome and the ship's about to go down, there's a word that's used there, take ropes or helps and tie them around the front of the ship. And, the, and it gets shallower and shallower and finally that boat that he's on goes aground. The Bible's very clear. It says the back of the ship fell apart, but the front held together. Okay? That same word for helps is the same word in Hebrews 4 that we can go to his throne and find what? Grace and mercy to help us. He literally holds us together. He holds my life together. He holds my future together. He holds my job. He holds it together by the words of his mouth. Why do we trust in everything else? And the last person we go to is Jesus Christ. Holds it all together. Mm, mm, mm. Jesus is the beginning and end of all things. There is nothing left that can be said. He is the final word. He upholds you and me by the word of his power. He is the perfect sacrifice for sin. He is alive and well and seated at the right hand of our heavenly father. He has all authority, honor, and glory. Trust him, love him, and worship him today. Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.